So <clears throat> what I wanted to talk about tonight is um, having the courage of our aspiration and how aspiration can really support us when things get a bit difficult, should that happen. <laughs> so just noticing this point in the retreat, you know, well into the middle of the retreat is a really interesting time. It's all interesting, but it's really like you're all cooking, you know, in different ways now. And uh, we're, we on the teaching side are really privileged. Some days it feels like a privilege <laughs> to hear everything that's going on and see the wide variations. And uh, the sense I get always around this time of the retreat is how much it varies for each person. You get a sense of how there's a time when you might be feeling there's a lot of insight. You're really starting to see and understand things. Maybe there's a period where the sense of self isn't so strong or the craving's really letting go or you're getting a sense of what uh, simple, quiet awareness is or whatever it is. You think it's really, you're getting some understanding. It's going. And then the, the next sitting or the next day, you're back in despair you know, and the, the patterns of heart and mind seem to have come back, not only did they come back, but stronger than ever and more gripping than ever. And you're more upset about it because secretly we thought it was over. And <laughs> even if we didn't think it was over, at least we thought we were getting the retreat together. And now it's gone down the toilet again, you know. <laughs> and, we, and we say, okay, just be mindful, keep going, keep going, you know, and you walk out, yeah, thanks a lot, you know. Don't you guys have anything helpful to offer? So, <laughs> we could just keep going. And then the next time, it's like, wow, so amazing. It's like so beautiful. It's like, you know, <laughs> it can change from one step to the next, right? And so... How do we keep ourselves renewing, refreshing, re-energizing, recommitting over and over again in, this in the times where it feels like it's all gone awry or it's just like, oh no, one more time, I cannot open to this self-hatred one more time, you know? So that's what I want to talk about really the power, the courage of aspiration, just because in the last, I'd say, couple of years in my life, I mean, there's many ways to support our, our keeping going, but the, the tuning into and consciously contemplating my own particular aspiration has been something that has, has been really helpful and supportive to me. So I'm just sharing that, um, that aspect for me. So starting with a sense of what the Buddha was teaching and offering, uh, really tuning into for me a sense of the vastness of the path. And the fact that he's saying it's freely offered to everyone. You know, the, the famous phrase, ehi pasiko, you too, come and see. That's something he said to everyone, not this is how it is, you have to believe it, but this is what I've learned. Ehi pasiko, you too, come and see. All are invited. Not just monastics, even though the particular way we've been offering the teachings has come from has been kind of kept, 
going 2,500 years through the monastic tradition of nuns and monks in the Southeast Asian Buddhist countries. But it's not just about for monastics, it's for everyone. And what he's saying really, I just want to read this because it inspires me, that not, not sell ourselves short with what's possible. This is the Buddha talking in the Samyutta Nikaya, some, the third noble truth. I'm not reading the whole thing, but just part of this particular way, <laughs> describing the, th the third noble truth. And one who has considered all the contrasts of this earth and is no more disturbed by anything whatever in the world, the peaceful one, freed from rage, from sorrow, and from longing, has passed beyond birth and decay. This I call neither arising, nor passing away, nor standing still, nor being born, nor dying. There is neither foothold, nor development, nor any basis. This is the end of suffering. Hence, the purpose of the holy life does not consist in acquiring alms, or honor, or fame nor in gaining morality, concentration, or the eye of knowledge. That unshakable deliverance of the heart, that indeed is the object of the holy life. That is its essence. That is its goal. I just love that. As aspiration, not as this is where I am now, but aspiration is really, uh, and that's just one. I mean, that's what the Buddha offers. I'm not saying that's what one's aspiration should be. It's unique to each of us. But the sense of his holding out that as possibility. To me, when I feel like I'm just, you know, spinning in my stuff or I'm on retreat too. And, you know, there's times on retreat where you're putting one foot in front of the other and going, why? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what has this got to do? <laughs> with anything. <laughs> okay, okay, awareness of sensation, awareness of aversion, okay, you know what? And just rem <laughs> reminding myself of that potential of aspiration. And as Ajahn Buddhadasa said in one of the, uh, you know, we've mentioned him before, there's a uh, well-known in, uh, in English-speaking countries, a translation of one of his talks, which I couldn't find, but it's long anyway, but called Nibbana for Everyone, where he was giving a talk to Thai people and talking about how, this was in the 1980s, 1990s, he died in the 1990s. And he was talking to Thai people and kind of lay people and saying, you know, it's come to be believed that Nibbana, freedom, is either just for very rare monks and nuns or something that only happened back in the old days. That it has nothing to do with people now, you know. It was a nice idea, but, you know, forget about it for us. And he's saying, no, Nibbana is for everyone. And so just the, really the short synopsis, Nibbana means cool. And he's saying it's that state of heart of mind that's cool, from the freedom from the coolness of no kalesha at that moment. Just a moment, and sometimes even Upandita would talk about momentary freedom, a moment of 
where we just touch the sense of what's possible when there's a, that real steady mindfulness awareness without any clinging or aversion or me, me, me. And we have moments of that, just moments where we get a glimpse. Even so Buddha Dasa calls it, okay, that's a momentary sense of the coolness of heart, mind, free from kalesha, but with mindfulness, wisdom. And he says, we all have many moments of that because we couldn't survive without it. You know, the fire of the kalashas, the burning of clinging and wanting and aversion and the endless, seemingly endless, but it's not, me, me, meing. Have you noticed how exhausting that is? How sometimes it really does feel like a fire. And the, the, just the sense of ease, of peace, of coolness, really when that's gone. Of course, it is from really hot countries where coolness is more a sense of peace. I know in Barrie right now in Massachusetts, you talk about the coolness that might, might not be the best uh, simile. But anyway, it's a sense of the ease, just noticing that, touching it, but thinking this is the potential for everyone. So just to bring it into the realm of reminding us why the Buddha taught, why we all are continually inspired and motivated to spend our lives both practicing and sharing this because it's like such an incredible possibility for each one of our minds and hearts and for the world. So this sense of aspiration, talking to someone today in your absicht, that's aspiration. Um, not a one-time decision, but a really uh, incredibly supportive and onward-leading aspect of um, our path, of our whole spiritual practice, which is really the path of our whole life, not just about a meditation retreat. Uh, just say a bit what, about aspiration. And the difference between aspiration and craving, desire, you know, we can often get confused between those two, of course. So aspiration as a wholesome sense of our deepest motivation, our deepest, really deepest purpose. In our, and I'm talking now in terms of our our life in terms of our awakening heart and mind. So from, from this aspect, it could be many things. But it's a wholesome factor. And you can feel, one can feel, when it's the wholesome aspiration, it has a quality of, of uplifting our energy, supporting our energy. It, <clears throat> it brightens our heart, our mind. It gives a sense of, ah. Like, so for me, when I read that, what I just read from the Buddha, if, I, if it tunes into aspiration, it's a sense of, you know, inspiration. An in-breath, filling the body, filling the mind, the heart with life, with possibility. You can feel the wholesomeness. And it gives the, the faith, the confidence, the energy to do, really the energy to drop into the next moment with total commitment, basically. But how it can shift of course, to greed, to wanting, and at times it will, it'll feel really completely different. 
because the the attention starts to get focused on the result, you know. So maybe the aspiration is for a complete awakening, and that can be really inspiring, uplifting, energizing, brightening. And then another time I could read this, but the, the mind, the heart is a little bit, or, or a lot, <laughs> colored by greed or self-hatred and not quite seeing it. It's like, well, that's just hopeless. You know, that's impossible. How far am I from that? Really far. And then you start, the comparing comes in and the sense of looking, you know, one eye on the goal or both eyes away from here. And it feels different, <laughs> way different. It can be frustrating. It can be demoralizing. Or you start, you know, making the checklist. How much more do I have to do? How far have I gotten? You know, but it's, a, it's not an inspiring onward leading state. It's a, a suffering, confused state. You can flip back and forth. Gil Fronstahl was writing a little bit about it. I like the way he described this. One way aspiration becomes craving is through expectation. Right? Okay, I've been meditating. How far along am I? Have I gotten there yet? Am I first stage yet? Let me make that, you know, through expectation. At its best, aspiration has an openness to possibility without a need for anything to happen. That to me is like the most succinct, beautiful explanation. An openness to possibility, to the vastness of possibility without a need for anything to happen. See how it's that's the practice in a nutshell. This does not mean that we do not act on our aspirations but that we do not cling to the success, to the results. There is something wonderful in a healthy aspiration that is not dependent on outcome. So that's not something we can just own, but I'm just saying it to drop into our hearts and minds. You get the sense of the difference when the aspiration is, yes, and it's not dependent on outcome, but it gives the energy, the determination to simply take the next step. So the sense of really what's true for each of us, our deepest aspiration motivation, I've found for myself and talking and reading to a lot of other people too, it's not so much something that comes through thinking about what it should be, a should, as soon as there's a should in there, it's not really quite the thing. But I found that whatever is a deep aspiration for you tends to arise in an intuitive kind of way. Like I feel it could come up in my heart, mind, often in the silence, in the stillness of heart, a contented mind. That can happen on retreat, doesn't have to be on retreat. But not when we're in the midst of trying and wanting and comparing and doing, but just there's a stillness to get more in touch with ourselves. And I'm sure many, if not all of you, are familiar with that. And what it is for yourself could be whatever it is to cultivate um, compassion, to completely awaken, to whatever it is, to be a better person. There's no right or wrong about this. But taking... uh, from time to time, taking the time, or just having it in the back of your mind to have a sense, notice if and when something like that arises, and to 
not let your, your little personality kind of trap think, oh no, that's not possible for me. Who do you think you are? This is an ego trip. You know, when the really a vastness, powerfulness of a, of a deep aspiration arises. So say, take what the Buddha says, uh, this unshakable heart mind. Say that arises as an aspiration. Like I know in my mind, it's quite could be quite possible. The next thought is, yeah, right, fat chance, you know. Or yeah, you think so? Yeah, look, who do you think you are? Maybe the Buddha. That's just the old habits talking. Blah, 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 thank you very much. It's just thoughts arising. But the sense of the, the power, the depth, the, the, the beauty of whatever the aspiration comes for you, I think it's, I feel it's so uh, uplifting, onward leading, and important to, to honor that, really, to let it in. It, it's really beyond the personal, you know. It's the personal that thinks, oh no, it couldn't be possible. But that quality, whatever it is, comes up for you, just, just let it in. Let it sit there and as best you can, just honor it without, without putting it down, without going into personal stories. And sometimes the, the aspiration can be inspired, like for me it came from sometimes from reading the Buddha. But what really, in, sometimes it comes from talking to someone else who's experiencing inspiration or hearing about someone else. So I just want to share a story um, of a woman, because this is actually what made me want to talk about this tonight. Some days ago, I was talking to a friend who, a long-term meditator, practitioner, and she has been involved for many years in what's called the Tibet Oral History Project, which is is, um, involved in interviewing elderly Tibetan refugees just getting interviews, whole stories of their lives. Some of them were up on the web. And, and she had, we had talked, she told me about this some years previously and had shared a particular story which she'd actually sent me the, the whole interview. But anyway, when we were talking the other day and she just kind of burst out again saying, and, and talking about practice and just talking, but saying, she remembered this woman that she interviewed Jang Chup Palmo. And uh, really, the depth of her wisdom and the simplicity of her kindness and love and, and caring for everyone around her and the incredible suffering she'd been through and practice in her life was so inspiring to my friend. I remember, my friend had met this person in person just uh, a few years ago. So this is a real life person, which sometimes is so much more juicy you know, you think, well, the Buddha, okay, but 2,600 years ago, maybe, you know, things have changed, like Buddha Dasa was saying. But the, so the profoundness of the depth of her wisdom and what she'd gone through, and here she is sitting here, this really loving, simple person caring for everyone. She said, what really inspired me? Why settle for less? Why settle for less? You know, it's really possible. So I'm going to just want, so because that inspired me, so she inspired me, my friend, who was inspired by this woman. So I'm going to give you a little brief synopsis, tell a story, this story. I mean, it's long, so I'm not going to, just I'm really cutting it down. But So Jang Chup Palmo, um, when she, she was born in Tibet in 43 to a nomadic family, but also fairly well-to-do at that time. And when she was about 15, and after the Chinese had been in um, 
the country for a few years, but then when they started to really destroy the monasteries and such, she and her family and village were all trying to flee to India, as so many did. And they got involved in a firefight with some of the Chinese army. And so many, most of the relatives she was with, her parents or siblings that she was with, were killed. And she was shot, she had like several bullet wounds in her legs and arms. She was 15 at this time. And so she was captured and taken, and really it wasn't to a jail camp, but to sort of a, sort of like a house arrest, you know. And they took care of her and, and took care of her wounds and all. But she was so determined she wanted to escape so that she could practice the Dharma. She had come from, her family had been really quite religious, quite involved with the uh, Buddhist practice and knowing many um, lamas, and, and she herself was quite spiritual from a young age. So she very much uh, couldn't practice, and she wanted to say prayers for her dead relatives and just basically practice the Dharma. So a couple of different attempts, but anyway, finally when she was 16, she's 16 years old, and she'd more or less healed her leg wounds, she managed to escape with one other person. This is in Tibet, like in the winter. And they managed to escape and flee, and I mean, it's a whole long story, I'm cutting this short, through the winter, falling in icy, in icy ponds, not having any food, going over passes, running into also other, like one woman who took them to her house and completely gave them food for the journey and ways to carry it, so people who would support them. And they finally managed to, managed to escape, she and this other woman. And they traveled for one year, one year, they got to Mount Kailash. One year walking around Tibet with nothing, escaping from the Chinese. So they got to Mount Kailash. And when they got to Mount Kailash, then she began really to want to do practice. And her, her friend was saying after a while, you know, I, it's too much. I'm too cold. There's not enough food. I really can't stay. And she said, of course, fine. Go on your way. But she really wanted to stay at Mount Kailash and practice. Now she's, what, 16, 17 at this point? So she starts doing full-length prostrations around Mount Kailash, you know, <laughs> going on and on, taking, you know, weeks and months and just storing a little sampa and then, you know, doing prostrations, going back and getting the food. And so she's doing this, just living in caves for some time, really trying to purify her heart and mind and so she can say prayers for her dead relatives and all. And at this point, she said, she met um, a couple of lamas came, you know, realized beings. And they came and... Um, were talking to her and saying, you know, what are you doing? And she was describing her practice and how she was trying to practice, you know, to be enlightened and also to say prayers for her parents. So the lamas, she said, I felt agonized by the thought that the Chinese had caused us suffering and killed without reason, yet I continued to practice. And so the lama was saying to them, well, how do you perceive the Chinese? And she said, well, to be honest, I perceive the Chinese as enemies, you know. They've caused me so much harm, and I believe that they're enemies. And he said, 
Well, you are doing a great deal of practice, but you know it's necessary to have love and compassion. And if you continue to perceive the Chinese as enemies, this does not conform with the Buddha Dharma. You really will never achieve complete enlightenment as long as that's how you are perceiving the Chinese. And so, you know, her lamas tell you, if you practice this love and compassion, the Chinese, the enemy will not be the enemy, but like your relatives. If you can love the enemy without any degree of difference, if you can do that, if you can learn to feel no difference, this is what you need for practice. So she, of course, had great faith, you know, and she'd been brought up in great faith, so she really took it in and she, she, you know, really vowed to this Rinpoche, yes, I really will really practice, I want to do this. So she's staying now in around Mount Kailash for years and years, practicing, just living in caves, there's nowhere else to live. And she said, I put in tremendous effort to learn. I, d- I practice again and again really hard. I exercise again and again, even while eating. And finally, with the Lama's blessing and doing pilgrimage and prostrations around the mountain, meditating and putting in every effort I could, really focusing single-mindedly on this, this coming to you know, love and compassion, I couldn't do it for almost two years. So I'm thinking only two years she couldn't do it. It improved a bit, you know, that she could improved a bit, then a little bit more. But the thought kept returning, you know, the thought of the Chinese's enemies. So I kept practicing while at Mount Kailash. You know, and we think, you know, I think, I don't know what you think. I think, you know, okay, I've been doing metta for a couple of weeks, you know, and I still <laughs> don't quite love myself, you know. <laughs> it's like, so, so she spent at least seven years there practicing, 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 you know, with this sincere devotion, but also the honesty of things. So how do you find the energy? How do you find the determination? How do you find the inspiration to keep going? So that's what inspires me. So she said, I lived at Mount Kailash for many years, practicing Dharma. There was no place to sleep except in caves. And so the interview is asking her, she's living, been living in the, was living in the States for many years at the point of this interview. And the interviewer says, if one pract- um, after spending seven years, can you help us understand what did you come to understand from that? And she says, if one practices diligently, it certainly is possible to realize enlightenment and help sentient beings. And those two are like conjoined, you know. So, skipping, skipping, skipping. But this is what she's saying now, how she is now. You know, that the essence of practice. I treat everyone with love. When people appreciate it, there is joy all around. That's the result of practicing the Dharma. However, you may not be able to practice love and compassion as the Dharma teaches all at once. But just kind of know a moment of peace, the possibility. So she says, I do my Dharma practice. I continue to do my Dharma practice that has brought me so much positive results. 
However, since I live in constant touch with human beings, these days I strive to bring happiness and peace to the people, try to elevate their suffering and multiply their joy and do whatever I can to help people. That is my work. So that's what I teach people in ordinary words, to love your parents and your family and then spread out to your community and spread out to the country. And then she's really working on developing love and peace between countries. To speak in terms of the Dharma teachings, you must really practice for years and years, which is difficult. This is, you know, a real person. <laughs> I, think, I think she's passed away now, but this, I got the transmission from talking to my friend and this kind of thing, like, oh, okay, this is possible. It's possible and it can, it could, you know, if, you, if the mind isn't covered with kalatia at the moment, that sense of possibility, potential, if that's what speaks to you, can really bring an energy, a willingness, not the grasping to be like, but as she says, okay, years of practice. Can I just open into this moment as it is? That's really how the aspiration can support us. Not in looking forward, but in really moment-to-moment mindful awareness, what's happening now, to meet it with fullness of attention, the kindness that comes with the compassionate awareness, and no expectation. You know, each moment is like a, an opening into the unknown. We have no idea what way each of our paths is going to take, you know? And even though... I, I doubt most of us don't have the degree of physical suffering that she went through. We all have our own particular difficulties and sufferings and joys in our life. And it's another kind of personality thing to say, well, my suffering isn't that much, so it's nothing, and push it away. You know, whatever suffering's occurring, that's the place where compassion and wisdom can land and grow, you know? so. It's like opening into the unknown. We need the, I need the aspiration to give me the faith and the courage to keep doing that moment after moment after moment. And as I said in the beginning of the talk, certainly for me, I think for most people on retreat, and I'm mostly talking about on retreat here just because that's where we are, we keep on coming to places where it's difficult, no? I call it, sometimes it feels like hitting the wall. You know, even going, 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 and suddenly it's like, oh, no. We hit the wall in so many different kinds of ways, and some walls are harder than others. Sometimes the wall is just a little bit of foam, you know, and you just kind of bounce and can keep on going. Sometimes the wall is really solid brick, and you run into it really at full speed, and it's like whack, you know. <laughs> I can't keep going. I'm out of here. And it almost doesn't matter what the particular content is although there's different contents, but it's just that sense of being thrown back. How do I find the trust in the energy to just open again, land again in this moment? As Ajahn Sumedho gives this, I think people have mentioned it, but he's talking about being in Thailand when he was practicing as a monk and in the hot season and it's really hot and these little kutis, these little huts with a tin roof. Have you ever been in a tin roof 
when it's like 110 degrees out, man, you cook. Um, this is from personal experience. You cook. And he says he's sitting in there just sweating through his robes, just sweating through his robes. I cannot bear this one more moment. Have you ever had that feeling? <laughs> About whatever. He said, and then I would find that I could. I love that. <laughs> I use that so often. Like, oh, this is just unbearable. And then my mind would go, yeah, what's actually unbearable? And that's not like a, that's not like a snide comment. It's like a real question. What's actually unbearable about this? And usually I find it's just that was a moment of aversion, just saying, I don't feel like being here anymore, basically. I, then I found that I could. So different ways, I just want to mention a couple of ways we hit the wall. There's many more. Just maybe so you know you're not alone, although maybe nobody here will have experienced any of those, in which case I'm just revealing myself. Mm. <laughs> but I, I, I tend to doubt that. <laughs> so one way is just simply how impermanence manifests in relation to either the technique of our practice, what's arising in the sitting and the walking, how impermanence manifests, and we don't see it as impermanence as causes and conditioning changes, but we take it personally. And if you've ever noticed that. When things are smooth, the breath, you're with the breath and it's quiet and subtle, it's pretty effortless, there's not much clinging, you think, yeah, this is now how it is, this is really how it is. And you go out to walk or you come to another sitting and the mind's just all over the place and there's nothing but thinking and we think, what did I do wrong, right? Isn't that what, what did I do wrong? There's a, a sutta from the time of the Buddha I like a lot in this with a, a monk called Asaji, who was, had been, he was really ill and probably on the verge of dying. But he had been practicing a long time and had strong practice, and so he was talking, the Buddha came and was talking to him, and Asaji was sick, afflicted, gravely ill. But he was very troubled, he's saying to the Buddha, I'm very troubled by regret, by remorse, and the Buddha says, why? Have you done unskillful things? Have you done unwholesome things? Have you had bad virtue? And he said, no, not at all. So the Buddha said, so what's bothering you, basically? And Asaji says, well, formerly venerable, when I was ill, I could keep on tranquilizing the bodily formations. I could calm the body with concentration, with samadhi. But now I cannot achieve concentration. I cannot calm the bodily formations with concentration. Now I think, oh no, let me not fall away. Oh no, I can't get concentrated anymore. I'm losing it. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And the Buddhist basically <laughs> said, Asaji, haven't I said over and over, <laughs> that the conditions coming together give rise to the results, and when the conditions change, the result will change. Formally, you could attain concentration. He's basically saying, okay, this is my synopsis. Asaji, you're gravely ill, you're dying. The conditions for concentration arising do not exist. But in my teaching, Concentration is not the essence. The essence is insight, the path and the fruit. He's saying, don't 
glom onto that and get all upset because the conditions have changed. But I like it because it's like, that's just what we do, you know? Oh no, it's gone. It was all about this. So that's one way. So just noticing that when things change, instead of taking it personally, notice how the conditions have changed. Oh, it's like this now. We need some inspiration, some trust, some faith sometimes to do that, not to get sucked into our personal story of, I blew it, I'm not good enough, what am I doing wrong? Other ways is um, not just when it changes, but when we're really seeing things, but it seems like so much, we just kind of feel, I can't see this anymore. Like oftentimes about now people are saying, I'm seeing, I'm just seeing so much clinging. It feels like every single moment what I see is clinging. Or another person will say that about aversion. Or someone will say about, about conceit with Bonnie talking, or just the sense of self. It's here all the time, every single moment, you know? And it's like, and we'll go, oh yeah, great, that's great, we're seeing it. And you, oh, but it's unbearable, right? <laughs> I can't bear to keep seeing this anymore. Doesn't it feel like that? It just kind of wears us down, you know? And um, even though we'll say, well, it's, I always say it's true, but it's not complete. You know, it's like, it's like we haven't quite seen it so clearly. So when we start to see it clearly, it just stands out. It's like, that's all we see. Sense of self arising about every single little thing. Oh my God, never saw it before. So we, it, it really stands out. So it's true, but it isn't complete. It's a little bit magnified or a lot magnified because of the constant, something Utejaniya said I love, concentration magnifies experience. The kalashas exaggerate. Yeah, put those two together that's when we go wild with yogi mind, right? When something that just is a little thing is like huge. So see, so something that's really an insight, seeing sense of self arising or how much clingings or how every little thing can seem like clinging, that's really useful insight, seeing how subtle and how frequently it arises. It's magnified through the stillness of some concentration. Even those of you who think you have no concentration, that's because you have some idea what it should look like. But there's some stillness, some steadiness in the mind. Or you couldn't even sit here for 45 minutes without going nuts. Um, so, so seeing it <laughs> with the concentration... <laughs> But if there's a little bit of aversion or a little bit of selfing, that's the kalatia that magnifies it. And that's when it's like, oh my God, hit the wall. I can't look at this one more time. For me, that's when I can call up the aspiration. Okay, I don't know where it's going, but there's the trust to just drop in. Okay, I can't bear it. And then I found that I could. Just this moment, not the whole future, not the whole past, just this moment. Or when we see our bad habits, our unpleasant habits of mind, and the patterns that have been difficult, and we're seeing them really clear, but with insight. You see, oh, I always get reactive in this situation, and I see how that's driven, and we, and we really understand it. And we have this sense, oh, maybe it's, it's not going to happen so much anymore. We really have that hope. 
First it's a belief, then it's a hope. And then we see it not only happening, with awareness it's happening, so it's more painful. And then we act on it again still, with awareness. And we're thinking, do you know what I mean? You can watch yourself doing the unskillful thing, which is actually better than doing it without awareness. Even the Buddha said that. But it's more painful. That's why it's better. Because, no. <laughs> I know. That sounds sadistic. It's not. <laughs> really. Wisdom, it's wisdom that abandons the unskillful patterns because wisdom, not, it's not an act of personal will. But when in acting in unskillful ways and the awareness is coming along, we go, oh, wow. Eating that 17th orange, like I mentioned the other time, that actually isn't really bringing happiness. You know, and the mind, maybe I don't need to do that. And that puts it down. Wisdom puts it down. But the wisdom has to kind of come along to see how the suffering's being created through the wanting and the aversion. But when we don't see that, that's again like hitting a wall. Not only are my patterns still here, they're worse. I'm more neurotic than when I started. And it's like, I, I can't, you know, what's the point? That's another place. And just one other I want to mention. Sometimes when we're really opening into new insights, perceptions maybe we haven't had before or in the same depth, maybe really uh, an intimation of what non-clinging the heart-mind of non-clinging really could be like in a moment. Or an intimation of really the sense of self, a sense of thing just kind of not arising. You know how sometimes fear will come when there's that little sense, oh, it could be possible. And that's okay. Fear just comes. That's nothing personal. It's just a habit. That's not what I'm calling hitting the wall. But sometimes for people... At different times, you can get a sense of intimation. Oh, it's if non-clinging is really, the liberation of heart and mind through non-clinging is really um, radical. It's uncompromising. It's not, I let non-clinging to anything except this one particular thing still get to hang around. It's not like we can get to abandon all the unpleasant experiences but still feel personally gratified by the pleasant ones. I remember one retreat I was suddenly realizing I wasn't really, awareness really wasn't picking up the unpleasant, aversion wasn't coming, but the pleasant ones would come in and it's kind of like, oh, let's land in that one. That's still, you know, it's like, huh. You don't get to have it both ways, you know? And so sometimes there can be, at least for me, I've noticed an intimation, oh, so liberation means even that. You know, I don't even get to hold on personally even to that, whatever it might be. And there can just be this little sense, I don't know if I want to go there. You know? And it's, it's, that's because it's some idea we have. We don't really know, but it's like, oh. So I've noticed for myself, it's like a sense of wanting to go back to the pleasure garden. You know, when the Buddha had, had, was brought up in all these pleasure gardens and everything and he left and went on his quest. But sometimes we're out there and we think, oh, I just would like to go back just for a little bit to the pleasure garden. It's not like we're abandoning all pleasant experience, but the pleasure garden is that sense of feeling fulfilled by it. I was talking to someone today and, and, we took, and I feel that myself. I just would kind of 
sometimes I wish I could just go back to thinking, oh, if I could just go have that movie, see that movie's really going to do it for me, you know, and you're going to still go see the movie, but we know it doesn't really do it for us, you know. So this kind of, um, Chogim Trungpa called it a, a nostalgia for samsara. Yeah? That's a great line, isn't it? And I felt in, sometimes in my practice, different times where there's a particular personality pattern or some way I've perceived myself that I wasn't even aware of and it just becomes clear, you know, it just comes up and it's so obvious something about it's just dissipating, going away. And there's a sense of a, of a small death of some idea of myself that isn't even particularly pleasant, but like it, it's comfortable. It's where we're at ease. It's a sense of almost of a, a grief or a mourning of the passing of some sense of myself, which is just an idea because that sense of yourself doesn't really go very far, but you start to see through it. And so sometimes that's like, ah, okay, this is far enough. No more. But, you know, we never just stay in one place. You can notice when that's funny kind of hitting the wall. Okay, I think I'll stop for a while. I'm, I'm, I don't want to give that up. But that's just a momentary thought, an idea. As Buddha Dasa says, you know, Nibbana is for everyone. And it's demanding for all of us. It's challenging for all of us. We're all going to face, to meet many, many, many really difficult, confusing moments on our path of awakening. And these are, in some ways, the most maybe not the most, but really important, really important and valuable moments on our path. Because this is where we're really kind of up against the belief systems we maybe don't know we have, or the, the areas we've gotten comfortable in, but that are really kind of keeping us, you know, in our little cage of Sakaya Ditti, our little cage of what we believe is possible for this personality, maybe without even realizing it. And it's not like we have to break the cage. We just have to see, oh, that's an idea. Bring in whatever inspires you. Okay, that's an idea of what's actually just happening now. The idea can hang around there, but just drop into what's happening now. It's impossible not to come up against this. And our path is lifelong and all-inclusive. It includes not just being on retreat, everything in our life, all aspects of our life. Freedom from clinging is uncompromising. Really, there's no part left out. And I believe with our most sincere intentions and aspirations and everything we read and talk about and hear from other people, our minds, our thinking minds, can't really imagine what that would be like. We can only imagine kind of a takeoff on what we already know, you know. We want to, I mean, I know in my mind, I want to know something ahead of time, you know, peaceful, nice, we use all these nice words, but we don't really know. We don't really know, you know. We don't know what to aim for, you know. We want a sense of uh, um, what awakening is going to be like, something I can compare it to now that keeps me going. But, you know, it's the only thing I can say about what I can grok in words is, Really, freedom of heart and mind, freedom of mind from non-clinging, real awakening, it's, it's not 
going to be some state that confirms us and makes us feel all comfortable and secure. You know, it's not going to make us feel good because it's the sense of us that gets seen through. But from the sense of me trying to understand, that's all we can, the only way we can think about it. <coughs> Excuse me. So along the way, at different times, we're really inspired, really energized, beautiful things happen, really amazing insights. Uh, The heart develops, are open, we feel love, we feel compassion, we see the change. And then at other times, we're really challenged. All of our views and assumptions and the ones we don't even know we have are going to get challenged. It can get to where it's kind of, I love it, usually. (laughs) <laughs> when all of a sudden I think I'm really ill at ease and go, oh, that's how I thought things were. That's the view in the background that is running the show right now. Oh, great. Great to see that. It's not how it is. So to me, this is really why we need to keep finding, in each of our own ways, the energy the commitment, the determination, the aspiration to just keep putting one foot in front of the other, one moment, one moment, opening to what is without needing to know what it's going to be like, where it's going to go, how our life is going to unfold. All right, I have to skip all of that part. (laughs) So I'll just come to say then, I was going to talk about determination, but that's for another time. So say, just what I, to offer in terms of aspiration, to find for yourself, not only what aspiration comes up for you, but explore, and probably you already know for yourself, what helps you to, when, in the times of difficulty, or it's just dry, or when you've lost touch with that inspiration, with what keeps you going, finding um, ways to reconnect with that. So... Um, For me, like one of the reasons I read the story, excuse me, about the Tibetan woman is because it does really get me back in touch with inspiration, with aspiration. And for me, that's one of the ways that really helps me, calling to heart, to mind. Various people, beings that I know, they don't have to be like completely awakened, but they may manifest different aspects of beautiful qualities that brighten the heart and mind, you know? And, and the way it's working is in that, that aspect of that person wakes up that aspect in our own heart and mind. So finding that's one way, different people. Like I'm thinking, I thought of today, this, this monk I, we know in, uh, in Burma, known him for about 15 years, and he's just very simple, peaceful guy, Ujayanta, very meta-filled. And he's just, he's looked the same for 15 years. I don't know, he doesn't look a day older, right? He's just, and we go to visit him every year when we go there. And he's just simple and friendly. And he just, you just feel metta and peace in his very simple monastery up in the Sagain Hills. I have a picture of him and just, he doesn't say much. It's not like you get this deep wisdom, but you get metta and peace and love. It's just who he is. So I'm, I get chills when I think about him, you know? And that's because if I couldn't access that in my own heart-mind stream, it wouldn't ins- inspire me, right? 
So when, we think, when you think of other people that bring whatever aspect it is alive in you, realize that it's coming alive in you. I know lots of different nuns in, in Burma, because I, I go there every year. And, and the nuns in Burma, it's, um, there's many, many women in Burma who are nuns. And it's not that they're all really super awakened. It's one of the, uh, especially in the past, it's changing a little now. One of the not so many avenues for women who weren't married or had kids to, to live um, a safe and healthy life, really. And many of the poor nuns, they also take in poor, either orphan little girls or girls that their parents have asked the nuns or the monks in, in their home villages have asked the nuns to take them because they're very poor or they only have one parent or they can't really get an education where they live and the nuns can help them get to school. So a lot of the nunneries function as a kind of a safety net for, for poor young girls. So, but, the, but these nuns, so I can think of a lot of them. I'll just t- tell you one. A lot of them, they, they don't all do deep what we think of as an intensive meditation practice, although some of them have that deep aspiration. But they, the, what many of the nuns do as their practice is, is um, Buddha Nupassana, which is recollecting the qualities of a Buddha. And they do this with chanting, and they do it with contemplation every day, every day. And you can feel it brings them really deep faith, a deep kind of inspiration that kind of shines out of them and gives them the energy to do in what is often really quite a hard life, quite a demanding life. And so, um, well, one nun, you know, she became a nun when she was sick in her 20s and almost dying, and her parents were about to give their last money, sell their last things to, to support her, to get doctors, and she said, forget it, I'm going to become a nun instead so you don't have to give up your whole farm. And she became a nun, and she had so much faith that it healed her. This was about not quite 20 years ago. And it healed her, and then her sister also became a nun. They came to Rangoon and were really excited to become deep meditation nuns. They went to a meditation center, and this was really what they wanted to do. And then there was a big cyclone in their home village down in the Delta, and the Sayadaw, the head monk of the village, sent them maybe 10 or 15 young girls to take care of. This is very common. So they had to just do a 180-degree turn. This is Do'utara is her name, 180-degree turn, and leave the meditation monastery, go find some little piece of land that they had to raise money to buy, build a little shacky bamboo hut, and start taking care of these little girls, these 10 or 15 little girls who become nuns and they have to then, they all live on donations, you know, alms food and uh, the money for their clothes. And so they're completely dedicated to taking care of these little girls. So this is a 20 year project, right? It's just turned around completely. They're totally doing it with complete love and tenderness and visited them every year for like the last nine years or so. And you can see the little girls growing and new ones come, of course, it never really ends. But the, the tenderness, the care, the love, the friendliness, it's not like, oh, we've got to do this and then we're going to go meditate. It's like this is now their practice. And the faith and the love just shines out. And they still say when they're grown, if the girls don't want to stay nuns, great, but we've given them a grounding in morality and how to live a good life. 
They help them go to school. And the schools, by the way, are run by other nuns who have devoted their whole life to starting these schools because a lot of poor kids can't afford the government school fees. And so they're helping these kids do this with all the love in their heart. And this is their Dharma practice, you know. They still say, and then when they're gone, we'll go back and we'll do our meditation. So that's just, so I think of Do Uttara. So in that way, she really inspires me too with this sense of deep faith and that you turn around and what life presents you becomes the practice of compassion and awakening. So that's one way. Find in your own life. Maybe a picture, someone you know. I was just talking to James. <laughs> he says he gets all teary about Audrey Hepburn. She really inspires him, you know. <laughs> it could be anybody who has particular qualities <laughs> of goodness, you know, that, that come out for you. This is just what hap- who I happen to know, you know, that brings it out for me. It doesn't have to be Buddhist. It doesn't have to be holy. It's just whatever brings out these qualities and you can feel it touches your energy, your aspiration. Right. I think that's enough. So find your own inspiration. Thank you very much. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. that unshakable deliverance of the heart, that indeed is the essence of the holy life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.